Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Because I'm fine. Hi, everybody. Listen, you're listening now to um, part two of our best of episodes. Thanks for listening. Um, for this episode, we will have Judith Passingham, who is just uh, a phenom. And I really love this interview. It was really kind of a, um, a coup to get her on. Um, she's the chair of the Professional Standards Committee for SMR. And SMR recently made some really some substantive changes to the in sampling industry, the SMR 28, which is probably the primary document that most buyers of sample use to compare different suppliers. It was kind of dated and she led a committee of industry leaders and it's updated. She comes on and talks about it and does a deep dive with it and um, how it should be used by sample buyers. I think it's relevant for buyers and sellers of sample to see how this committee thought about it. And Judith has been through this for quite a while. She knows what she's doing. She's an expert and she's an awesome interviewer. Yeah, I think you nailed that on the head. I do think, though, if we had a bucket list of of guests, she's probably on it for you. So you can check that one off. Yeah. And we should be having somebody else, uh, a good guest in January, to talk about other good topics like this. So keep in, keep uh, our podcast on your listening um, radar. Um, the second part of this interview is going to be Lynn Adelman and Laura Finkelstein. They work at Trifecta Research. And I think this is a really good, um, what I loved about this interview was talking about how this changes that we've all kind of seen in the industry over the past 15, 20 years. And they also talked about a new product they have around an omnibus, a B2B omnibus, which is kind of interesting and kind of best practices for that. Yeah, a little behind the scenes, um, this Trifecta interview is one of our more popular ones we've had. So I think it's really good to revisit this one. Good. So without any further ado, um, Judith Passingham in the first segment um, from SMR, which is great. And then Lynn and Laura from Trifecta Research in the second segment. Thanks for listening. Joining us now, I am super excited to have Judith Passingham. Um, she is the current chairman of the Professional Standards Committee at SMR, which is a very important role. Um, hi, Judith. How are you? I am very fine. Thank you very much on this uh, damp August afternoon. <laughs> in in the UK, it's damp in August. Okay. Yeah, thanks for joining. I Obviously, an online sample, um, we use the SMR questions to help buyers of online sample almost on a daily basis. And um, there's been an update to that that we'll talk a little bit about. But first, maybe kind of what's your background? Like, how long have you been in research? What kind of roles have you had? So, yeah, so I'm, um, I've been in research actually nearly 40 years, which is a little bit of a surprise to say. But sort of, uh, I was a, a literature graduate, actually, and I went to work for the British Market Research Bureau. 
And um, I worked on something called the TGI, the Target Group Index, which is a continuous syndicated product and got involved in going out and sort of talking to media agencies, ad agencies, TV companies, that sort of thing about how they were using data in sort of trading and for uh, business diagnostics. And I, I found it really interesting. So then I went to a company called AGB and I worked on their continuous consumer panels for quite a few years and sort of became the UK managing director and then the global managing director of something called World Panel. Yeah. Then I moved over into the custom business, having done that for a while. And um, I was responsible for TNS in in Europe. And um, we did the integration between TNS and Research International. So two really good, you know, prestigious research brands. And then sort of more recently, I went to join Ipsos and um, I ran their global access panel and did a lot of global integration work and um, latterly ran their operations. So I've worked on lots of different things. I've handled global accounts. Um, I've worked a lot with GFK and MPD and companies like Intage on uh, joint ventures and sort of had a really good time in the research industry actually Re- really enjoyed my working life in this industry i i almost just want to not talk about smr and just talk about your history in market research <laughs> that is an impressive background i also worked at ipsos and at pns as well um, so thank you for all your contributions to those companies. Um, you, there's probably not many people that understand online research more than you um, with your background. That's, I mean, that's impressive. One thing that sort of I found when I worked in online research is sort of it's so dynamic. It's really difficult to keep up to date with it. Yeah. It's changing all the time. And sort of, uh, so when, when I worked on it, I, first of all, um, I applied some, if you like, sort of, business kind of approach to it so one of the things that struck me as being very important was to make sure that the services that we worked on were globally integrated so that you can move people around the globe um, production operations professionals move their expertise from one area to the next make sure that your global clients have got consistent global experience which is actually quite hard to do, particularly if you've got a, an infrastructure that's been built up through acquisition because you've got different systems, different approaches. So yep. I spent quite a lot of time on that kind of thing. Um, and then obviously automation, um, sort of automated sampling, programmatic sampling, that kind of thing. But sort of one of the things that sort of I really enjoyed was actually working in the operations teams and sort of because they're a bit like the unsung heroes of market research and yes. sort of a lot of times, you know, these people are the people that really make sure that sort of research agencies can deliver to the end customer. So they're a very, very important part of the workforce. And they're also on top of a lot of issues like sort of um, business development, for example. Can we make some new products? Can we actually create it in the factory, if you like? Can we make this thing? Um, or privacy issues, you know, how do you make sure that you're on top of privacy issues in a large organization? And one way you can do it is by making sure that the operations teams really understand it so they can spot things, you know. So I found that very stimulating, actually. And sort of um, I, I hope that sort of operations teams will be a, a brought, brought to the fore a little bit more um, in research. Absolutely. 
I love the operations mentality, and I think it's necessary for your latest role. I'm assuming this is your latest role, and that is as chairman of the Professional Research Committee at SMR, which um, has recently updated. We call it the SMR 28, and now that's our insider lingo. Um, Now I think we're going to call it the SMR 37. And so you were part of a committee that helped update that. And so what, what kind of led you to SMR and kind of kind of almost volunteering for the industry? <laughs> so, yeah, well, I retired a couple of years ago and sort of Finn Robin, so, who I know very well, came knocking on the door and, and SMR and asked me if I'd chair the committee. And sort of professional standards is something that I feel very strongly about. Yes. Uh, and I think it's very important for the future progress, progression of, of the industry. So sort of it, it was a kind of easy thing to say yes to. And one of the roles of the Professional Standards Committee really is to sort of make sure that we've got the codes, guidelines, protocols there for people to rely on. And sort of so that so um, what I've been doing in, in partnership with the, the consultant to the committee, who's Reg Baker. So we very fortunate to have Reg involved in, in, in SMR for many years, have been looking at what we do, what we update, uh, what we publish, what we don't need anymore. So this this kind of thing. And one of the things I'm very keen on, which I think where we've got more work to do, is that sort of these codes and guidelines are really practically and commercially useful so that they're not confined to two or three people within a within an organization who really understand things like the GDPR or whatever it happens to be, yep. um, the privacy protocols, but sort of that they're actually commercially useful for researchers. You know, and some of the issues that we have to contend with is, are very complex, so it's quite hard to make it like that. Um, but that's an ambition that we've got, that sort of we can make these things more accessible, more digestible. So that researchers can download them onto their, you know, iBooks or whatever it happens to be, and they can actually refer to them. You know, when when I'm doing a passive study, yep. for example, what are the things I need to think about? You know, more checklists, more questions. So that that's the kind of direction that we're heading in. But of course, we have to pay attention to the heavy duty ethical stuff as well. So that's yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's quite the team you have. I'm looking at it here. It's listed in the document. You mentioned Reg Baker, who was the North American representative, and he's a longtime researcher, a veteran of the industry. I'm a big fan of his. And Pete Kate from Dynata. You obviously want Dynata's buy-in since they're such a huge global supplier. And then one of the keys I think that you did was including Melanie Courtwright from Insights Association, Peter Mella. I mean, it's just an all-star. I could keep going. The names that are on here are impressive. J.D. Deach and Efren Ribeiro, Mary Beth Weber. Um, really sampling experts. I bet that was quite fun working, getting this committee together. Just having these minds on one committee is awesome. Yeah, it was It was very good, actually. So we had the project team, which was led by Reg. And so, do, so we had this tight project team and we met every few weeks and we each had a, a section and some points to consider and we critique, critiqued each other's sections. We had some arguments about things and kept going around some things, which I think is... <laughs> Friendly arguments. Yeah. And then we had a sounding board. And sort of you can see that this sounding board is very global in its composition. And that's something that we were very keen on to have a not as well as a North American representation, which of course is the very dominant leading market in online, but also to have some 
people that had worked on a global basis that understand what's happening in Asia Pacific in the Chinese market, sort of um, in Europe, which, you know, some of the markets in online are very, very different in terms of their behavior, what's important, what's strong, what's developing, what's growing. And so we tried to get that with with the sounding board and with the committee. And, and I think we managed to achieve that. Um, so there was a lot of feedback, a lot of comments, debate, argument, and sort of we landed on something that I think is good for the moment. But sort of I think one of the <laughs> one of the things that we need to do, I mean, sort of, you know, this this document, it, it's probably overdue that it's uh, updated because the um, original SMR 28 questions, which incidentally is one of the most uh, widely used um, SMR uh, documents by by quite a long way was very out of date and so because this market is so big and it's so complex now we i think we need to update it at a much more frequent interval i think that's very important yeah absolutely just today at our company meeting like less than an hour ago we talked about we went through a presentation about how online sample has changed since 2013 and we chose that date because that's when i joined EMI and really got into sampling. I've been in research for 20 plus years, but I hadn't really focused on sampling. And just in my eight years, it is a completely different industry almost. And so you're, I mean, that's funny that this just came out and you're already thinking about updating it. That's how fast we're moving. And so first of all, this is a, the changes that have been made are just incredible. And I know this came out earlier this year. We still haven't updated ours yet. And that's in some ways, that's a credit to your team because they're much more thorough and specific, which I think will help people that buy online sample make better educated apples to apples decisions when evaluating different um, options that they have. And I know that that had to be one of the objectives of it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And sort of, I I can imagine, Brian, that you, like myself, have been in front of lots of procurement people or people in client organizations that don't really understand how the online market is working. And sort of, you know, what I said earlier about it's a market that's so fast moving and so complex, it's difficult to stay up to date with it. So in the face of that, you need something that's kind of, you know, objective in a way and a little bit of a backbone, something to use as a basis for discussion and saying this is important but that isn't important and sort of I think particularly procurement directors I mean I know you have procurement directors who are specialists in research these days but sort of you don't always get that and it's very difficult to describe what's important what isn't important I think this will help I hope it will anyway oh absolutely yeah this is a huge help and you know, you have different users of it. You have procurement people at large organizations and you have people that are like private independent consultants that are buying online sample, right? So I think everybody in the industry, everybody listening to this podcast should understand kind of what's in the document. And so maybe you could talk really quickly, like maybe a couple of the changes and new additions to the document. Yeah, so it, lo- it looks like a lot more questions instead of uh... But actually, I mean, sort of, so we've obviously gone into purpose and scope and company profile, which is designed just to give a little hint of how much experience you've got in sample. And I think there we we need to differentiate between people that sort of are really looking into sample in detail because it's their daily activity and people are acting as uh, middlemen or brokers. Yep. And I've had quite a lot of experience of that. And sort of, so 
the level of knowledge that you really have about sample. That's what we're trying to tease out in that section. We went to town on the sample sources and recruitment section because obviously you've got this, um, you know, in 10 years ago, it was sort of, it was panel and river, right? Sort of now it's much more complex. So we had a lot of discussion about that section. So that's considerably expanded. Then you've got sample and project management, data quality and validation. Again, more information on that. Um, And then you've got sort of policies and compliance. That's really a new section, which is starting to deal with some of the privacy issues, not in a great detail, but enough. So you get a bit of an indication. And then we've got a new metrics section, which sort of we can talk about. So I think sort of, I mean, we tried to keep the number of questions down. It's obviously quite difficult because of the size of the industry. And if you consider that now it's kind of like the bedrock for almost everything, I think that sort of we've got we've got that balance. We've got that balance right. So, yeah, Judith, there's quite a few updates here. Um, how, how would you recommend people utilize the document? Oh, no, that's a very interesting question because sort of so on the 28 questions, sort of what, what was tending to happen was all of the providers in the market publish their answers to the 28 questions and sort of it, it became like that and sort of what we're hoping will happen this time round. I mean obviously organizations need to think about how they would respond to those questions but sort of is that this really forms the basis for a discussion about sort of uh, what you're providing and sort of rather than something that's an answer because if you think about sort of the differences in research programs, you know, so sort of you're doing a quick fire media study or you're doing a, a long term tracker or you're doing a global study or you're doing a. It, these things are so different that the answers will be different and in a totally justifiable way. You know, there's no one right answer in a sense, you know, um, right. your ability to answer the question in an authoritative and knowledgeable way is written that you have a really good um, discussion between the provider of the sample and the user of the sample using this as the basis for that discussion is how we hope this will be used and sort of we very keen that it's not used as a stick to thrash providers of sample with but something that really helps people to understand what's important in sample at the current point in time so that's how we hope it will be used. Of course, we'll be going out and asking people after a few months what they think of it and whether we can make further improvements to it. But sort of that's what we hope. Yeah, you know, we talk about here, you know, we we have a network of over 100 different sample providers and we talk about them as they're not necessarily good or bad. They're just very different. Yeah. And what we don't want at EMI, and I don't think the industry should want, is the commoditization of sample. They're very different. They have different recruiting methods. They have different ways of managing their panel. And that's okay because we want to grow the respondent base. And if one company focuses on a niche B2B target and they use different validation methods than um, you know, a consumer panel in Canada, that's okay. But the key is, and that's what you did, was give the opportunity to differentiate them and to talk about why those differences exist and that's i think you've accomplished that yeah and i think that's very important because sort of understanding why that what those differences are why they exist 
has got a lot of relevance to the uh, to the research study that you're doing and sort of like um, sort of whether you require consistency and constancy on your sample base mm-hmm. uh, whether there's any any particular respondent types that you're looking for i mean sort of the mix of all those things that we know are important need to be discussed and sort of so this is kind of the basis for the work here that's that's what we were that's what we were aiming at um yep. really and you know, I noticed over time, I mean, this is the first update, I think since 2012, that companies started using this document as almost a marketing collateral of a sales piece. And I think, I feel like that you all kind of recognize that. And that's part of the, was to try to not sell, stop using vague terms. We're going to ask you very specific questions. Um so they're all apples to apples comparison. That that's one of the things that kind of stood out to me. I'm not sure if that was a direct objective, but I can see this is much helpful for as someone that buys a lot of sample. Yeah, no, absolutely. What you say is absolutely right. I mean, sort of I think it's because the because this market is so complex, it's sort of it, it can be very mysterious and sort of like maybe oversold or, you know, misrepresented in some ways and sort of that isn't good for anybody. So this this objective view being very concrete is, is very important. So that's why the discussion, I think, is better than using it as a marketing positioning, you know. Yeah. And if you think about the variety in research projects that are commissioned these days, I mean, the variety is absolutely enormous. I mean, sort of there's no one answer to, to a question or it depends what you're trying to achieve. So having a discussion like this where the provider of the sample really understands what the researcher, the research buyer is trying to achieve is very, very important in, in, in terms of what the sample provision looks like to match that, to, to meet that yes. requirement. Yeah. Yep. And I'd love to talk about the metric section. Yeah. This is my favorite new section. And I would recommend people, it's on page 18, what the section is about. I'm not going to read it, but it's, List common sample and data health metrics, and you go into detail about it. It's question 37, but there's really a bunch of more questions as part of this, and which talks about um, qualifying rates, completion rates, trended by month, percentage of paid completes rejected per month. I mean, you get very specific in some of these questions. I think there's 12 of them. Can you talk a little bit more about why you went kind of in depth with this metric section? Yeah, that, 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 I think this is a very important um, part of the work that we've done here. I mean, sort of, there was a very strong ask, particularly from the from the client part of our sounding board, the client representation on on our sounding board, that we start to move towards a situation where we provide a basis for understanding differences between one provider and another provider. And so sort of after a lot of discussion, this is the list that we've come up with. Now, sort of you'll notice when you look at the preamble that it says not all all of the metrics are required. There's no benchmarks on the right answers. Um, That sort of we're trying to drive towards providing transparency, that it's trying to fuel a dialogue about quality and utility of the sample that you have to offer, making sure that the sample is appropriate for the population they're trying to represent and the business questions that are being examined, you know. So to, so it's moving towards this, how can you compare this sample with that sample? 
And the way we think you can do that is by driving more transparency in the industry. And that will help because and it'll also test what people are looking at in their sample, what they're looking for in their sample, how well they understand the way that their sample is behaving. But again, you can, you can, you know, is there a wrong and the right answer? I mean, if I just pick on one question here, which is uh, question five percent of paid completes from smartphones trended by month. Yeah. Yep. If, if you're an organization where you have a lot of legacy trackers, for example, and those tend to be a bit long, then you might you your sample might be geared towards non smartphone sample. You know, so that might be all right, you know, and then you might have the capability to raise a lot of smartphone sample. You know, you might have that capability um, if a client requires it. So sort of just going into a little bit more of that detail, you know, my business looks like this. This is why, you know, this is how the this is how smartphone sample behaves. This is this is what you need to do to drive effective smartphone interview. You know, so it leads to a discussion about that. Yeah. I mean, it's still surprising that we're talking about smartphones. These days. <laughs> yeah. sort of, there's still quite a lot of trackers that are not sort of smartphone optimized, you know, which is so yeah. that that would be a really active discussion point in our industry. You know, and sort of, oh, yeah, that's a great example because a certain panel might say we're 100 percent smartphone. Another might say 15 percent smartphone. And there are different use cases and objectives of research and that will drive people to either of those scenarios. That's not necessarily good or bad. It's just different depending on the objectives of the study. That's that's a perfect example. Thank you for sharing that. That's good. Yeah. And sort of like, I mean, sort of, you know, if you're going after young male respondents or you're going after busy mums, you know, then you, it might be relevant to have an all smartphone sample, but sort of in other cases like the legacy long trackers you know it might not and sort of yeah so i i think that's that's a good example yeah if talking about i mean the sort of we've got one there question 10 about male participants you know and sort of we all know that male participants young male participants is a particularly challenging target group you know and sort of the, the feasibility is a main consideration there but your ability to raise sample in that area is a very important characteristic you know if you're doing a beer study or something like that you need to know that the organization that you're talking to really understands how this respondent base is behaving how you can optimize the questionnaire to sort of make sure they're responding and all of the other issues around that and sort of that you've got the capability to raise that sample um, and how you're going to do that sort of so I think that sort of approaching it in that way could be could be a kind of option you know sort of not everybody will be provide you know every organization will have reports you know that show how their sample base is performing and some of them hopefully you know sort of they'll cover you know three quarters of the things on this list right sort of the issue of transparency is is the main point here you know show us how this sample is behaving now of course this this means that sort of um Professional practitioners of sample will hopefully win out here because they'll be able to talk with authority about how the sample is behaving in detail, you know. Um, and I think that's a good thing, you know, and I think that will help the research industry and I think it will help uh, research users as well. Yeah, I love the, you mentioned at the last sentence about providing transparency over time will create a meaningful dialogue about quality and utility. And that's 
the key to this is the dialogue, the transparency, and the conversations that will occur after this. And that's that's the good part. Anything, any other updates to this document that we should look for or that you found interesting or maybe one that you argued over? <laughs> well, I mean, sort of, we argued over a lot of it. I mean, sort of sample definition was uh, quite difficult. Oh, yeah. But we've come up with something that sort of... Uh, we hope is sort of practical and easy for people to understand. I mean, sort of the, the number of uh, iterations we had on this, we've tried to come up with something that sort of, you know, is practical and sort of it, it's clear enough to people about what we're driving at here. Yeah, but, it, but sort of... Uh, I'm sorry, we didn't even talk about the glossary. That's We needed the line on definitions. And so SMR, talking about the meanings of different things, like what's an API, what's an affiliate partner, um, what is a loyalty program? And those are things that we've kind of debated for a long time. And so this was, that's a whole nother big section. And of course, yes, there's going to be some, if you're not arguing over how to define this, then you're probably not doing your job effectively because that's can be somewhat controversial and um, to align on that's really challenging, I bet. Yeah, we did, we had quite a few arguments about that as well. I mean, some of the definitions here are standard um, SMR definitions. So for example, yep. Um, SMR's got a long-standing definition of what an API is. There's sort of some of the other things that we've come up with here, how we've described things like loyalty programs, um, sort of um, rewards communities, etc. Sort of we argued a bit about those and sort of came up with something that we kind of all agreed with. Yeah. And hopefully those start to kind of form a little bit of a common currency. Because I think it's it again. I mean, if you're if you're talking to users of research within client organizations i mean sort of do they know what an affiliate network is i mean sort of maybe maybe not you know um blending you know something that sort of people who've worked in the industry for a very long time understand what that is i mean just having it written down we think is quite useful um so we're hoping that sort of clients will use this to discuss with um sample providers sort of challenge them a bit to have a you know spark a discussion about what we're doing here and we'll also share their business objectives you know sort of we're trying to achieve this that means sample stability is very important or it means young respondents are important or um, global coverage is important or whatever it happens to be that this can form the backbone of that discussion and it's a kind of neutral objective considered backbone of the discussion so that's kind of what we're what we're aiming for yeah yeah well that's outstanding. Thank you. What are the next steps? You mentioned um, I mean, other iterations of this document in the future. What are next steps either for this document or for other things that SMR is doing, if you're aware of it? Yeah, so we're um, on the Professional Standards Committee. So we've, um, we're, we're going to keep an eye on the, the, the way this document is received. And after a, a few months, we'll go around and, and seek feedback and find out how it's landing. Um, but we've got to give a little bit of time for people to consider what we've put down here and sort of start to test it, use it a bit and sort of see how that goes um, and then sort of decide how frequently we're going to update it. Um, we've got some new codes coming out sort of uh, in September. So we've got primary data collection and duty of care. Those are more sort of they're more around the ethical codes that sort of go- govern our industry, if you like. So that's a collaboration between SMR and GRBN. Okay. The other thing we're looking at at the moment, which is really a very interesting, tricky topic. So sort of 
we've been doing some work on this and sort of we're hoping to come out with a white paper in in the autumn at some point is about artificial intelligence and the way that it's going to impact our industry and sort of that that's a really interesting topic because sort of we, we're looking at all the launches that are coming out in the research industry some you could argue are machine learning um sort of some are looking for patterns in things but sort of there's all sorts of questions about sort of how the research industry should respond ethically and practically to artificial intelligence. One of the, the things that sort of has a bearing on our market, the online market, is this issue about representation and not leaving certain groups of the population behind, you know, through exclusion or, or kind of bias or things like that. So sort of if you look at what the European Union is saying about upcoming legislation and you look at the statement that was made in April by the um, FTC about artificial intelligence, we're governed by our existing codes and laws about the way we're dealing with respondents. But sort of I think also we have to look forward a little bit at what's coming down the track and start preparing ourselves. Um, and I think there's... There's some things that researchers need to do to make sure that we're protected as an industry and that we're compliant with the law and all of that kind of thing. But I think also there's a great commercial opportunity for researchers to be the honest brokers of representation. You know, so we, we're the industry that can really represent populations in a holistic way. And I, I think that's quite exciting. So we're starting to we're having a lot of we're doing work we're arguing and debating at the moment about about that topic so that's really that's something very exciting actually to work on yeah yeah that's that's wow. what we've been behind the behind the curtains of the professional standards committee that's that's incredible so much to unpack there it's a whole other podcast episode um so looking forward to what's coming soon from slr that's that's amazing yeah so we'll keep you informed of what's going on there <laughs> Well, I do want to promote um, SMR. If your organization isn't a member, this is the tip of the iceberg of what SMR provides to the industry globally. They were a huge benefit during the pandemic last year and continuing on in, in organizing all kinds of data and reports and how to kind of navigate that tough world that we are in and hopefully emerging from now. Um, I wanted to mention that, and I know that the Amplify and Accelerate is coming in September, um, September 20th through 22nd. Anything else you'd like to promote, um, Judith, about SMR or anything else? I think you've done a very good job of promoting SMR. So I'll, I'll send you the link to the, um, to the online question so you can, you can uh, attach it to this, uh, to this discussion in some way. So hopefully people can download it easily if they haven't already got it. Absolutely. We'll do that. Gina, thank you so much for joining us today and kind of giving a highlights of this updated document. And really, thank you for leading the standards committee. That's not an easy role to have. And so thank you for kind of taking that on. And uh, we appreciate you kind of fighting for better quality and for everybody in the industry. So thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Brian. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm great, Brian. Thank you. Really nice to meet you. And I loved your LinkedIn profile. I looked it up, by the way. Um, market research executive providing insights that drive customer experience and product service development. I like that. And also joining us is Lynn Edelman. She is a vice president of market research at Trifecta. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good, Brian. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm super excited. 
maybe we can start off with kind of your all's background um, at Trifecta or your career. I know that both of you have, or have been in research for a little bit. Sure, I'll start. Uh, well, I've, as you know from my LinkedIn profile, I've worked in market research uh, for quite a few years. I've worked uh, both on the client and the vendor sides, as well as running my own independent consulting firm for roughly two decades. So I've covered a lot of territory over the years. My experience covers both the quantitative and the qualitative side of things. Uh, I've covered, as you can imagine, a wide variety of consumer and B2B topics, including everything from healthcare and beauty and luxury goods on one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, which is construction and home improvement products and basically everything in between. I'm also a trained moderator, so uh, I do most of the qualitative work here at Trifecta. Right now, I currently, in my current role, I straddle both sides of the the spectrum, the quantitative and the qualitative world. So I manage primary research in both. Got it. i uh, fascinated with your background. I think we might have overlapped at Ipsos. I was at Ipsos about the same time you were, and I also did qual and quant. That To have both of those hats is really tough. I found that it's challenging for people to do both. So that's awesome. It is a challenge sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, Lynn. Sure. Well, like Laura, I've worked in market research for a few decades, um, both on the supplier side and the client side. I've done B2B, B2C, and B2E, uh, having done employee engagement research too. Uh, I, I've done qual and quant and a lot of secondary, in fact, for a a wide variety of verticals. Um, I've also uh, had the chance to lead an analytics team and developing uh, KPI dashboarding using uh, internal and external data. And I've also done uh, a lot of text analysis in past jobs, but currently I'm focused primarily on the quantitative primary research. Wow, you- Let Laura handle the qual. You both have such a broad, interesting background. It reminds me of myself, like I, kind of jumped around from role to role. And I was scared that I wasn't an expert in any one kind of discipline. I had done telephone research and qual and quant and in person, and I was in sales. And then after a while, I'm like, what have I done with my career? But I think it, it turned out okay. <laughs> um, right. But it's similar for you all. <laughs> yeah. Being a generalist, uh, you, you do get to experience a lot of different types of projects and it really brings in a lot of of sort of value to your, your clients because you've had so many diverse experiences. Yeah, absolutely. I found that too, but I was scared for years. Um, so what kind of led you both to Trifecta? You both had been on the client side and um, had a lot of different roles. What brought you to Trifecta? Well, you know, it's funny what you just said about being a generalist. I, I was initially drawn to Trifecta because it's really one of the few organizations that I've ever been involved with that's really allowed me to pursue both the quantitative and the qualitative projects um, that I've had a lot of experience with, while also stretching my category knowledge in areas where I previously only had really a a passing familiarity. Um, I did not know a whole lot about the the home improvement category, as an example, before I uh, started working at Trifecta. And now I pretty close to being an expert in a lot of, a lot of these categories because we've done so much work in that, in that realm. Um, having worked most recently 
after I left Ipsos, I was working for a firm that was very highly specialized and we did sensory research. So coming to Trifecta really presented me with this welcome challenge of being able to cover lots of different categories and different methodologies. So it, it was um, it was a good move. <laughs> no, that, that sounds great. I um, It's interesting you mentioned becoming an expert in categories. And I I worked on two categories for a lot of my career. I worked on baby care and I worked on men's underwear or boys' underwear. And let me tell you, I was not a hit at parties. I can talk, I mean, who wants to talk about diapers or um, little boys' underwear? Um, but home improvement sounds a lot more fun. It can be. It can be very interesting, <laughs> yeah. actually. A little more relevant, hopefully, for at least for maybe it is. And Lynn, what about you? What brought yeah. you to Trifecta? Well, uh, my previous two jobs, um, I actually was on the client side. And so I was focused on really specific uh, consumer markets. And I found that I really missed uh, being able to understand and get to know multiple industries, which I had done in my previous job. So, and I also miss B2B. I know a lot of people love B2C, but I, I think B2B is really complex and I, I enjoy that challenge. So um, the other thing is that one of my previous jobs was for a DIY woodworking tool manufacturer. And I found that to be a really great fit with Trifecta because we do have so many clients in the uh, home improvement, building, remodeling, refurbishing space that I've really been able to uh, bring that sort of knowledge through to my clients. So that's been really fun. Oh, that's awesome. And for our listeners that maybe don't know about Trifecta, maybe you can tell us more about what Trifecta does and what your approach is. Sure. Well, Trifecta is a boutique research consultancy. We're based out of Asheville, North Carolina. Okay. But we do have tenured staff around the country. As an example, Lynn is based in Des Moines, Iowa. I am based in New York City. We have... um, staff all over the place. Uh, So as the name implies, Trifecta 3, there are three main parts of our business. The first piece is the, of course, the primary market research, which is what Lynn and I uh, focus our work in. But we also have two other parts of the business being the secondary research arm. Uh, We have a secondary research team that conducts reviews of published literature uh, you know, anything in the public realm to um, things that have already been conducted to really leverage and synthesize it into something that's relevant and actionable to our clients to answer the specific questions they have. We do tap into a, a huge variety of sources. Uh, and the head of that team is has a degree in library science. And she's she's really amazing when it comes to knowing where to look and how to look. Uh, so we tap into a variety of sources such as academic papers, association publications, um, corporate reports, conference proceedings, white papers. And of course, there's many commercial data aggregators out there that we also subscribe to and tap into. So that's the second piece. The third piece is our strategic consulting arm. And this part of the business taps into... This is where we do kind of deep dives into various categories and and subjects. We tap into subject matter experts, channel insiders, even futurists to help the companies that we deal with understand their markets, 
uh, understand their channels that they work in and understand where the technical technological and growth opportunities may be for them. So that's that's the piece of the business that really goes into that deep dive. And we this involves a lot of in-depth interviewing with, as I said, these subject matter experts. So that's trifecta. Well, that, that's interesting because I think all of the three that you mentioned, the secondary research, the, I guess it's quant, the survey part, and then the subject matter expert all kind of lend itself, right? They help each other. You advise your clients at a higher level than probably most, I would expect. We'd, we pride ourselves on um, not just execution, but really getting to the heart of those insights. So regardless of the methodology that we're using, really, the, no matter what we're doing at the end of the day, the goal is to give our clients those kind of implications, those recommendations for their their specific business um, needs and to activate, help them activate the insights to support their strategies. So yes, we do a lot of consulting in that realm. Yeah, that's, I think that's I think clients appreciate that about us. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, I don't normally do this in the middle, but I um, you can find more at trifectaresearch.com, um, a lot more information about Trifecta and I think one of the things that I liked when I looked at your backgrounds, I kind of noticed that both of you were similar to me in terms of like being generalists and had a, a pretty broad career. And you all just went through that. It's fa- it's it's um, fascinating. And I thought maybe we'd have a quick discussion about how market research has evolved um, over the, I've been in research for gosh, um, 25-ish years. And um, I think both of you are, are senior in your organization have been around for a little bit as well. So maybe we can have a conversation about that. From your perspective, how, how has market research evolved in the last, <laughs> I don't know, 10 to 20 years or whatever? Pick your time frame. Sure. I'm probably going to go back a little bit farther than that. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I started with Nielsen back before uh, technology really took over. So mm-hmm. um, I have a, a slightly different perspective, but, um, you know, you know, at its core, market research, you know, the purpose of it is to help inform decision makers so they can make better decisions and meet client needs, right? So they, in order to do that, they need their uh, burning questions answered. And back when I started, we just had basically a handful of tools. We had our uh, telephone surveys. We had focus groups that we recruited by phone. Um, And remember, those focus groups were always 10 to 12 people. You know, we never did uh, smaller groups or, hey, the the mall intercept. Now, that was that was innovative at the time. Um, But, you know, still, you know, we we still need to answer those questions. We just need to do it more quickly. And now that we have uh, technology at our fingertips, we've completely changed the number of tools um, that we can tap into. But I think more importantly than just the tools, the sources of the data that we have access to, it, to, to pull those insights. So things like pulse surveys, um, agile sprints, uh, virtual shop-alongs, ethnography that you know, doesn't take months, if not years, um, text analysis um, of sort of video uploads from our consumers or our uh, customers that are sort of real-time uh, analysis. Um, We can do sentiment analysis of our social media data, as well as, you know, uh, product reviews. Uh, So there's just so many 
ways to tap into consumer insights now um, that we're not exclusively reliant on just self-reported data, uh, which I think is really exciting, that we can pull together those insights from a a broad group of sources and really get that full picture of how we're serving our customers, what their true experience is like, um, and then how our products and services feed into what the role is in creating that experience for our, our customers. I was going to say that that's an amazing answer. And I hadn't really thought about it like that. And, and you know, I'll let you, Laura, before I maybe expand on what she said, I'll let you answer as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely echo Lynn's uh, sentiments here. I mean, the pace of things has exponentially increased, and we have so many more tools to work with than we did years ago. And uh, Lynn and I uh, share that experience of, um, you know, back before we had all of this technology, um, or at least less of it. So, you know, this also creates expectations because we have so much to choose from and everything works so quickly now that it creates these expectations for faster and faster delivery of results and insights so that our clients can make faster and faster decisions. That's, that's kind of the expectation now, you know, in a similar fashion, the way in which we report these insights has also changed dramatically in my mind uh, compared to years past. You know, the, I, I mean, reporting tools and, and formatting and um, dashboards and interactive um, ways to report data now are, are so much more sophisticated than they ever were in the past. The data not only has to be, of course, accurate and insightful and um you know, well-written and well-executed, but it also has to be presented in a graphically compelling visual format that can really quickly communicate the essence of the information. So things are much more visual than they used to be. Um, you know, I, the, there's the old adage, it's, it's much easier to write a long report than a short one. Yes. <laughs> because you really have to think about uh, the words that you use versus the visuals, et cetera, to really, you know, kind of capture the essence. And, and that, I think, is is much more challenging than it used to be. And this kind of brings us full circle. When you all talked about each of you being generalists and having such a diverse career, as these tools keep getting, um, you know, there's more of them in our tool belt. They're more sophisticated. Um, the use case is very different and very niche at times. I think that, in my opinion, like being a generalist helps you with choosing the correct tool because, you know, like you mentioned, um, Lynn, the telephone interviews, small intercept, focus groups, that was that was like 80% of our tools that we had available for us back in the early part of my career. Now it's almost unlimited. And there's challenges, especially for those that don't have a broad background of when to choose which tool, right? Um, so I think that's a huge change is the ability to kind of determine based upon the client's objectives, which tool to use. And then you have what Laura, a lot of what she talked about, the pace, which is a factor in what tool you choose, all of the expectations that clients have and faster delivery time and how we display this information 
all of this has changed much more sophisticated in visual is what you said. And so I just did a long winded summary of what you all said, but I think being a generalist is such an advantage, right? I, I, I truly agree with that. Uh, I think that the trick is to not get too enamored with one particular tool and really think about what it is you're trying to accomplish and what the, the client's goal is. Um, and sometimes it, you know, it, your recommendations are going to change based on what their objectives and their goals are. But you, you don't be too quick to um, become fall in love with a specific tool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, and I think that there's a need for somehow for us to create more generalist in research. When I, throughout most of my career, the reason I didn't want to be a generalist is because I saw these people that spent their entire career as an analyst or working in data processing or um, doing coding, right? But now with DIY tools and all this agile research, we I, maybe maybe you can disagree, but I feel like we need people that are so much well-rounded in terms of um, skill set that you have to have the ability to design a questionnaire and a methodology, and you also need to have the ability to almost like build tables and build a discussion guide, and that's really challenging, right? Yeah, it really is. I think that you you need to be able to picture what you're going to end up with, and then back into how it is that you you know collect the information. How is it you're going to uh, to communicate it? How you're going to visualize it? You have to have the end in mind uh, at the very beginning of the project. And unless you have that broad experience of that that of that generalist, you're not going to be able to do that very efficiently. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right, Lynn. And many times clients don't even have an idea of what that visualization should look at, should look like at the end. So we as generalists, as researchers need to, as, as you said, Brian, kind of know enough and have enough in our toolbox uh, of, of methodologies to be able to help them visualize that and, and crystallize their vision. That was good. I could probably talk about this topic all day long, um, but um, in the essence of time, I want to move on to another topic, and that's Omnibus. And, you know, we used to not get very many questions in terms of um, requests for an Omnibus or who has an Omnibus. But I think recently there's really been a, a reinvigoration, if that's a word, for Omnibus and those types of solutions, making a comeback. Um is that what you're seeing? I know that you all have an omnibus and you're kind of experts in that area. So is, is that what you're seeing as well? Sure. Uh, we're not necessarily seeing an increase in, in demand or desire for the omnibus uh, from, a, I, say, I guess, the upfront standpoint. But what we're seeing is that companies who offer omnibus studies are really innovating in terms of the output um, because we're seeing more and more of these companies offer self-service portals so that their clients can uh, gain access to already visualized results. It used to be you'd only get uh, you know cross tabs and they were you know not very attractive um, or you'd just get the raw data. But now you can uh, turn in your um, your five your few questions and then five d- days later you get your results to a chart. It's already visualized um, and then you do in fact all s- still get those cross tabs. But like I said, we're we're seeing the innovation more on the, the back end of the omnibus as opposed to, you know, the front end, the inputs. Okay. Just turning around really fast for decision making with this trend of like 
agile research, right? Right, right. Okay, so, and for those that may not be aware, kind of jump the gun there. What Some people may not even be aware of what an omnibus is. Can can you define what an omnibus survey is? Sure. It's, it's really pretty simple. An omnibus is a survey that a research company um, sends out on a regularly scheduled basis, like once a week, once every two weeks, uh, every three days, wh- whatever it happens to be. And they're sending it to a predefined sample to represent a particular population. Usually, not always, but usually it's uh, representative of the, of the U.S. adult population. So you can pay the company to include up to, say, 10 questions in this omnibus. And um, in theory, it's faster and it's less expensive than a custom study. So you get your results to your very specific questions in a very quick, uh, quick and efficient way, and you get standard demographics. Uh, it can't be anything fancy, but it's a it's a quick way of getting answers to some very basic questions. And it, the it's usually inexpensive because it's kind of almost like shared costs, right? Is that exactly? Right? Yeah, exactly. Your your questions are typically being asked in addition to questions that other clients have put in to the survey. Awesome, thank you. And so. If someone were um, thinking about using Omnibus data or had questions about it, do you have any kind of like really quick best practices or um, high level kind of best practices to advise people? I've seen two areas where people sort of uh, run into issues or challenges when they use Omnibus. And the first is you really need to know who that Omnibus is meant to represent um, because first and foremost, you need to be able to, uh, you need to understand the population to which um, you're trying to, you know, tap into. So, you know, let's say you have uh, a high incidence product like toothpaste or, or dish soap or something like that. And you only have a few questions answered uh, that then it's a great option. But let's say you have a real niche product or niche as they say on the East Coast, um, the it's maybe it's a luxury appliance that is built for you know high net worth couples. Um, that trying to find them in a omnibus is probably going to be really inefficient. Um, so that's one area that I think you really need to be careful about. The other thing is important to remember is you need to know how to properly craft a question. Most organizations that offer omnibus. Uh, want you to submit your questions and then they just run them as is. They might, if, if a question is completely off base, they might try to steer you back on, but they're not set up to really help you make sure that uh, the, the question is written well. For example, you know, we want to make sure that you don't have order bias or social desirability bias built into that question. You want to make sure that it's not leading or that it's uh, what they call a double-barreled question. Um, you need somebody who knows how to write those questions. And if you don't do that uh, often and have um, skill in doing that, then um, sometimes you can end up with uh, really in- unreliable or invalidated results at the back end. Great advice. And I mean, some of those are, you would think they're kind of almost basic market research um, principles, but as we evolve and and the industry takes us to become more generalist. A lot of people, I've seen this a lot, that people don't spend enough time writing the questions and thinking about things like order bias and social desirability bias. So I'm glad that um, we talked about kind of this 
methodological questions like that because they're so important. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And then you recently launched a new Omnibus solution. Can you give us some more details around it? Sure. Well, what we we launched is what we're calling a B2B Omni alternative um, to create the benefits of a traditional Omni, but yet um, be more targeted to the B2B audience, um, specifically in the construction and home improvement um, realm, because we have so many clients that really um, are interested in that area. So um, what we found is that um, even existing B2B omnibus studies are, are too general because most of the time our clients are not looking for just a business owner or even, you know, a head of IT. They're really wanting to get in more specifically. They want to talk to or hear from, you know, designers or architects or drywallers, even um, electricians, uh, pro painters. You know, th these are really um a value to our, our customers, um, but they're not going to find those in an omnibus. So uh, maybe they also only have just a few questions they want answered. And so they don't want to uh, do a full uh, ad hoc custom study. And they need it done fast because they only have one sprint to uh, you know fill that knowledge gap in their uh, agile project management schedule. So how we, we've structured it is that our clients send us the questions that they want answered just in very uh, broad terms, real rough format. We'll help them with the wordsmithing. So um, they don't have to worry too much about that. Within 24 hours, then we tell, um, we tell them how much it would cost to hit 100 completes per segment that are relevant. And then we edit those questions so that they are real tight and they're going to get at what they need. Then um, once we get approval on the questions, then we program it, get it in field uh, quickly. And as soon as we hit the quota, then um, we start work on, uh, we download into chart format for each question. So they already have the charts built. It's not, um, you know, just a, a ugly crosstab. And then we also write a two to three page summary of conclusions and implications based on our knowledge of that client. Um, and then, of course, the client does get that record level data, just like they would in, in a traditional uh, omnibus. Um, our goal is to do this in uh, seven to 10 business days so that it can, in fact, fit within that generally two week um, sprint that most of our clients are working on. Uh, but to be real honest, uh, I looked at it yesterday and our, our average is between six to eight business days. So slightly longer than a broad consumer omni, but way more relevant to uh, our B2B clients. And um, the clients who've used it have been uh, really appreciative about the ability to target those those uh, those pros. Um, they appreciate the fact that we're crafting the questions for them so they don't have to stress about it. And um, they're also uh, the fact that we've streamlined the process and streamlined the reporting. Uh, it really has put it in a much more affordable category, much more like a traditional omnibus. No, I'm really impressed. I I was unaware of this, and I we get at EMI we get so many requests for construction and home improvement categories. It's just rampant, especially kind of what's going on in society right now. Um, that I think that really quick insights in this field is just incredible. I think this is um, 
good job in kind of building something like this because I think it's solving a lot of challenges that clients have um, that's really quick and um, certainly relevant in the industry. I'm super impressed. Well, thank you. We listen to our customers and, you know, that's the, <laughs> the core of market research, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything else you'd like to say about um, Trifecta or um, how can people reach you if they have any more questions about this? They can come in through through the website. They can give us a call. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. Uh, any of those ways are, are available. Okay, awesome. Well, look, I really appreciate your all's time. I could have talked to you all a lot longer. Um, it's awesome to have two fellow generalists on the podcast um, that have this, such a broad experience. And I'm super excited to kind of do more investigating of your, your um, B2B Omnibus. So thank you all for joining. Great. Thank, thank you. you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.